For the week of Wednesday, April 11th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Representative Keith Ellison. He is the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, and he joins us this week to talk about some of the stakes going into the November midterm election and how, if the Democrats prevail, it will be because men and women and young people and seniors and people of all colors and backgrounds come together and stand up for the noblest values of this country. Also, in light of this week's developments around the investigation into Trump, we revisit our February interview with MoveOn.org's Washington, D.C. Director Ben Wickler to talk about the plans for mobilization if Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is fired. Step one is flood the streets, make absolutely clear that this is a constitutional crisis that Congress needs to act. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Congressman Keith Ellison represents Minnesota's 5th District. He is the vice chair and labor liaison of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a chief deputy whip of the House Democratic Committee, and he is the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. Representative Ellison, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, man. Glad to be here. Feel free to call me Keith, but uh, really, I'm excited to be on the show. Well, we're very happy to have you. So first, I want to talk a little bit about why you have come here to Washington State. We have uh, three districts that are in play right now. Absolutely. The, the third against Jamie Herrera-Butler. Yep. The fifth, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, number True. four in the, in the Congress, as you well know. And then here in the eighth, where we are in Renton today, Dave Reichert uh, is giving up his seat at the end. So talk a little bit first about some of the opportunities for Democrats here in Washington. Well, let me tell you, we need about 24 seats, and uh, the road to a majority goes through Washington State. There's no doubt. And so, uh, but I just want to tell you that your state party is among the strongest in the country. I mean, I think there's a good argument to be made that you might be the strongest. In fact, in what ways? Well, because uh, you are organizing people on the ground. You're organizing people to go out and talk to Washingtonians all over the state. You are doing it in the urban area, in the rural area, in the suburban area. Uh, You have leadership who is trying to heal divisions within and is bringing people together. Uh, In the course of my time here, I've seen people of all different ethnic backgrounds, which means that there's some somebody's committed to trying to bring in diverse voices, men, women. Uh, And so that that is I think those are real strengths. Right. You look at the hallmarks of a party, a state party, and I'm not going to name any names because I don't need the trouble. But you look at a, you look at a state party that is not healthy. You see, it's racked by internal division. Mm. They're not or, they're not training people to be organizers on the ground. They're not reaching out to young people. I mean, they, it's, the Washington reach, does, does a great job. A lot of young people, uh, and you have, and they're not aware of the need to reach out in in terms of like social media. They're technologically behind. And so I think that if you did, if you were to get a list of health and lack of health for a state party, uh, I think that uh, Washington Dems uh, stack up very well. And by the way, I know I know what I'm talking about because I go all over the country. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking before we began. I don't honestly know where you uh, find the time. You uh, are the head of the you're the deputy chair of the DNC. You are running for reelection. You're an active member of Congress and you're out doing these these events. So uh, as I was saying, I think you must find uh, like an extra day of the week that the rest <laughs> of us don't have. Well, you know, you and I were agreeing that when you got a burning passion for something, man, yeah. it's just easy to do. It's not even work. You know, it's a. Uh, it's 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 like you just get up and you do it. Uh, when I do try to relax, I start thinking of ways to organize and change this country around. 
I mean, we're trying to fight to make sure we have universal single-payer health care, Medicare for all. It is my dream to see that happen in the United States of America. We have, a, we have you know, all kinds of crisis when it comes to, like, environment. We have a water crisis in the United States, particularly in places where there's plenty of water, like in Michigan. Right. I mean, you know, we, we have issues we have to confront. Our country is being uh, really, uh, in, you know, People who are trying to divide us on the basis of race, class, religion are have a louder voice than they used to have in the past. This is disturbing to me. I believe in liberty and justice for all. And there are people who want to negate that. I mean, you know, you see a bunch of uh, guys walking through Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, saying uh, Jews will not replace us with tiki torches, ki- literally killing anti-racist uh, protesters. Uh, the, where do they get the nerve to even come out of the closet. They used to wear masks. Right. Now they don't. These things are disturbing to me, and they keep me up at night, and I can't think of anything better to do than to assert the idea that this economy has to work for everybody, that everyone should be included and nobody should be excluded, and that we have to live in harmony with our environment. We have one world. It's a blessing, and we can't trash it. And when you think of all the abundant sources of energy in this world that we don't have to ruin it to, to harness, why wouldn't we do it? You know, so these things animate me. And uh, so I just I'm just following natural paths here, brother. Well, th- these are certainly the stakes and we yeah. know what the stakes are going into 2018. And you spoke at an event last night in Seattle and you seem to caution people against becoming overly optimistic right. about the Democrats chances of taking back the House uh, in 2018. You said there is no blue wave. Uh, I agree with that. Tell, that it, tell us what you mean by that. So so the thing is, you know, um, waves um, in the ocean, nobody makes them be waves. They're, they're natural. Just, they're natural. There's nothing natural about the success we might have in November. It will be because men and women and young people and seniors and people of all colors and backgrounds come together and stand up for the noblest values of this country. It'll be because we come together and we stand together and we fight back. That'll be the wave. We will make the wave. We are, are so the wave. We have to be the wave. We have to be the wave. So I, I'm just worried that people will... Look, weren't we just sure that uh, Hillary was going to beat Donald Trump? We, exactly just knew, right. yeah. we knew that was going to happen. That was in the bag. It didn't really matter whether I showed up or not. Oh, it matters whether you show up or not. In yeah. fact, we cannot spare one single person in this fight. We've got to mobilize and inspire uh, a wider number of people as we possibly can. And that's what we have to do. And how do you keep people, how do you advise keeping people really motivated and enthusiastic going through all the way to November? Because that's what we're going to need to do, clearly. Well, we've got to help people redirect their outrage into uh, into that love and uh, aspect. So what I mean is that like, okay, so you're mad that Trump is so corrupt. Well, then we don't want you to just go on his, be outraged by his corruption. Let's talk about how you can fight for accountable government with real integrity. So not against, but for is what Yeah, because all these negatives can be flipped to the other side. I mean, his corruption, well, the opposite is integrity. His division, the opposite is unity and solidarity. And we should be, and those things are self-motivating, I believe. I mean, and and then the other thing is you do need to take a break sometime. And that doesn't mean you quit now. Hmm. But if you need some self-care, you take it. Like if you're a Washingtonian, 
Man, you know, go to Baker Mountain, go to the ocean, go to Puget Sound. Plenty of places to go. And Absolutely. then get your and then get yourself back on the trail after that. Yeah. But if you need to take a minute to just clear your head out to get back out there, then you take that moment. But remember, what you're doing is recharging your batteries. And after your batteries are charged, we need you to get back out here and help organize. And you know, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And you know, tweeting, talking to your 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 book club or the people on your job or the people in your faith community, always be trying to figure out how you can you strengthen the ties between us and, and exalt and lift up the best ideals of our nation. One of the things that's going to be absolutely key is voter turnout. We oh, know, that's we, the key. We know this. Now, your district, Minnesota, right. uh, uh, Minnesota's fifth, has one of the highest voter turnout rates in the nation. That's right. What can we learn from you there? Well, let me tell you, we used to have the lowest turnout in the state of Minnesota. So we used to have, so Minnesota has eight congressional districts, and the fifth district used to be the lowest turnout district. We converted it into the highest turnout district, and here's what we did. We, we engaged people on the grassroots level by training a whole lot of people and sending them out in the off year and then big time in the, in the on year, but we started early. We started early because we didn't want to get our campaign teams um, synergy going like after Labor Day. We wanted to be in place by Memorial Day or well before that. We and so we started early. We uh, and we work in the off years. We because if you only work in the election years, you 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 subtly communicate the idea that all you care about is the election. Right. So you can't you can't let that ever be the thought. You don't want the pastor to say, "Oh, it must be." voting time because I never see you any other time. So we go, we have community meetings at the church. We talk about things like payday lending at the church. We talk about healthcare at the church. We talk about, you know, Hey, what if your church got some solar panels on top of it? You got a flat roof. Let's work on that. You know, we engage people so that when it comes to be voting time, it's kind of a no-brainer. Then the other thing, we don't waste people's money on TV ads. There's never been a Keith Ellison for Congress television ad really never and, and and because it's because we can knock the district so why would we put our money into that i'd rather put the money into the canvas because the canvas builds relationships you cannot ask a tv ad a question you cannot add tell a tv ad that you're worried that you're that if you always want to be able to send your kids to college but here you are uh, 45 50 and your kids now 18 and you ain't got no money for them. And so now they're going to have to borrow a bunch of money. And you, as a parent, you might feel bad about that. I mean, I know people who've told me that, right? Uh, you know, the bottom line is and you, that's, uh, you can't tell that story to a TV ad. That is, an ad you, that is something that's told to a person. People who are worried about, you know, uh, I had a woman tell me she was going to get a double mastectomy, even though she had not been diagnosed with breast cancer because her mother died from breast cancer and her mother's sister died from breast cancer. And she was a young mom and she was too young to die because her kids were only nine and 10. Mm. She said, I can't, I, you know, I lost my mom when I was a kid and I, and I'm, and I'm thinking of getting this double mask because I need to be there for them. This is what this woman said to me. So uh, you can't do that with a TV ad. You need someone at the doors. You need a person, you need a relationship. So as a result, we just drive, you know, we just get better and better turnout. And there are no statewide Republicans, not one, not one. There used to be, 
Tim Pawlenty used to be a statewide Republican, mm. and Norm Coleman used to be a statewide Republican U.S. senator. We have none now. We do not allow them in because we jacked the vote up so high in my district that the state that that, that nobody no Republican can win statewide. There are no Republicans in my uh, in the state legislature in my congressional district. Once they try to become one, we 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 zero them and we get them. We treat them like a virus. We're like we're like we're like white blood cells attacking a virus. You know, we circle them and we get them. You know, and and that's what we do. And we can't. We use a lot of teamwork. So me, I I ask all the state legislators, city council members, school board members, all of them. We convene. We carve up the territory, and we say, look, we want to go up four percent next year. Whatever the turnout was last midterm. This midterm, we need four extra percent. That means we got to get this many more voters, new voters, not the old ones, new the old ones plus new ones, and we got to get this many per 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 week per month. We count. I get a report all the time from my field director on how we're doing. So, like this weekend, this kid, 23 years old, man, he's sending me reports on. We talked to this many people. We made this many calls. We reached out. To, we actually got this many people to respond, and that makes this many for the year. And, um, you know, I, this event we have coming up, we invited them to that event. And here's what we heard from several people. So what I hear you saying is you're, you're really getting a solid person-to-person engagement. That's a deal. Wherever possible. And if we did that all throughout the country, Democrats would never be worried about anything. We would, we would win big time all over the place. Okay, well, let me dovetail on that just a little bit because there, there are particular challenges of running in so-called purple districts, right. like where we are here in the 8th right now. Right. Uh, I think the concern is you need to have a part of your platform that, as a Democrat that will appeal to moderate voters, independents, you know, rural voters, while still maintaining your support from the progressive right. part of your, your voting base. Right. How do you propose striking that balance for candidates? Well, you know, what's a funny thing about staying close to your people is that the messages just emerge. You know, the I, the idea. So, for example, when you knock on somebody's door, you don't know what their political ideology is going to be. They might be great on civil rights, but they might be kind of uh, conservative on the money. They might be great on 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 economic justice, but feel like uh, immigrants are infringing somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, but if you go listen to them and you talk to them, you deal with all these barriers. There's something about it. I mean, like I talked to a guy who told me, well, you know, I like everything you say about the economy, everything you say about trade. But I just feel like we need to shut down our borders and because, you know, we need to have jobs for Americans. And I just started explaining to the guy. I said, look, man, you know, uh, it's our trade policy, which eliminates uh, the small farmer in Mexico and they, and they got no choice but to come here and you would do the same thing. People get that. And then I say, and also, you know, you know, these folks are, are doing jobs that, you know, they don't, the, the businesses report not having enough workers to milk the, to milk the cows, to pick the cherries, whatever. And you listen to people, you hear them out, you share with them what you know about it. You listen to what they say about it. And I've had many people tell me, Keith, you know, I don't, be- I don't agree with a lot of things you said, but I'm going to vote for you anyway because I believe that you believe it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think you're willing to listen to me. And that's how com- that's what we do. I think that you can win in purple districts as a progressive if you have a campaign that emphasizes the relationship, the one to one relationship, and you get to know who lives where. You, you know where they go to the VA. You know where they go to the church. You know where they go to the, uh, you know, the things that they, they do because people are involved in different kind of things. And, and that is the key. I think the biggest problem with, the, with, with Democrats 
is that we have sort of gotten the impression that uh, politics is about TV ads, high donor fundraising, and mail programs, and data analytics, when what it's really about is the relationship between the candidate and the people. Yeah, well, you also mentioned last night that the approach for the Democratic National Committee yeah. used to be when in the White House. And yeah. that was that was basically it. Yeah, and so that was your it. approach differs. You're doing a 50-state-plus territories yep. approach. That's right. Well, so here's the thing. So you have the DCCC. That's the House Dems. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to just I'm going to ask you something that I, I kind of wanted. I, I've heard from listeners that they yeah. would like this explained a little bit. So the Democratic National Committee right. is you were the deputy chair of that. Sure. There are a number of subcommittees. There is the DCCC. That's Congress. There's yep. a DSCC. That's Senate. Yep. There's a DLCC. That's legislative. That's there's right. a, there's the DGA and there's that's that's governors. Yeah. Are all of these uh, subcommittees. Do they operate independently yes. or do they answer to you? No, they operate independently. Okay. So there was a situation where the DCCC got involved in a primary gonna ask you down in that. Texas. Uh, I did not agree with that decision. I went to my friends, because they are my friends, and said, you know, we're still smarting over this perception that Bernie Sanders didn't get treated right in the primary. Uh, that is not helping us. We, If we're going to appeal to a broad cross-section, we've got to be scrupulously fair. We can't do primaries. My friend told me, look, in this one, I thought we needed to do it, so we did it. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you this. It's your prerogative, but it's not helping from our perspective. So you don't have any say-so as to whether or not. Say, a spokesman right. <laughs> for the D, uh, DCCC said that they would probably try this again. You have no ability to say, no, you can't do that. We cannot stop them from doing it. and so, But we can use our powers of persuasion to try to convince folks that— well, How would that look? Well— not just because just because you don't people don't see it doesn't mean we're not leaning <laughs> on them. It I'm sure that's true, but I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of curious what you can well, tell what me. What it looks them. like is is me. Uh, well, I'll put it like this: I told them that if you are going to publicly say that you're going to get in, then I hope you're not upset for me publicly saying that I don't think you should. Yeah, you know, you have a right to free speech. So do I. I'm not going to crack on you because I do understand the need for unity, but I'm also not going to co-sign what you just did publicly since you did what you did publicly and so that's kind of how it is i mean and when we go to them behind the doors and say look you may think this is going to win you a short-term deal but long term it's 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 it hurts our brand and we, and so we just got to use persuasion you know friend to a friend right it hurts our brand there's also a perception that i hear that uh Fundraising ability gets weighted too heavily when evaluating candidates, uh, particularly by uh, the Democratic leadership. What's your take on that? I think that's true. I think that we do have a bias in favor of the self-funder. And I think that that means that if you're driving a bus or even teaching a class or if you're a police officer or a firefighter, then you're not like people will. I mean, one of the first questions they ask you is, uh, can you generate X million of dollars by this much time? And if you're and if you're a bus driver or you're a custodial worker in a school, the answer is like, no, <laughs> of course I can't. But even that, if you have great ideas, even if you have great ideas. And so and so here's my thought about that. If you do, if you have a grassroots orientation 
And we understand the fact, and I mean a F-A-C-T, fact, that actually in the United States, at least until the last election, it's actually votes that are going to win U.S. Congress, not just more money, right? I, I mean, it's, it, it shouldn't have to be spelled out that way. But, but, but it's weird, you yeah. know, because it feels to me that some people think that whoever gets more, raises more money wins. But actually, it's people who raise more votes wins. Well, I think we've seen this play out. I mean, notwithstanding the whole mess with the with the madness of the electoral college, leaving the presidential alone for a moment, it is a thing of who gets the most votes. And how do you get votes? You talk to more people, you engage more people, you persuade more people. There is an assumption that just having more money allows you to engage more people. Well, uh, and it's just not true. I mean, Connor Lamb got outspent. I was more just going to say more yeah. than two to one. Yeah. And by the way, Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, let's just be I mean, people get pissed when I tell the truth about this stuff. But I'm sorry. We've got to deal with the fact that money has has a corrosive role to play in our politics. And, and, and it turns people off. And, 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 and we've got to create a Democratic Party where people feel like a cop and a teacher and a nurse and a firefighter and a construction worker and a public defender like I was. Right. Can 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 run for Congress. You, you know, know, since you bring up a lot of those blue collar jobs that you just mentioned, you're the labor liaison for the Progressive yeah. Caucus. So I'll ask you what I've asked a number of Democratic candidates who have appeared on this show. And that is, why do you feel the Democrats have largely lost the labor vote? And what can they do to get it back? Because it's, it, it used to be such a core part of the, the Democratic uh, base. So so what happened is is that um, people on the far right identified labor as a core pillar of the Democratic coalition and and put the bullseye on labor and began to attack it systematically. The big gut punch to labor was Pat Coe with Reagan. That, that was the air traffic controllers. Right, strike. right, right. Yeah. And then when their density began to decline after an, a union busting, after a lot of attacks on labor, and now we're in the full, they're in the full, in the middle of attacking uh, public employees, and this Janus decision is quite dangerous. Um, Democrats, some of them just said, well, they didn't got the money they used to be, uh, and we follow the Willie Sutton uh, theory of politics. We go where the money is. You know, they asked Willie Sutton, why you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money is. So so the reason that we're and so but but that changed the dynamic, right? Because if we're not relying on our friends who are workers every day to support our campaigns, then we got to go to the country club and rely on them. And the folks in the country club, I agree, are fine people. Many are fine people. They're great people. But look, but they're not wondering. They're not price. They're not comparison shopping bread. Right. They're not comparison shopping rents. They're not worried about that. If, if they're good people, yeah, they're probably great on the social stuff. They're probably definitely for LGBT rights. They're probably against racism and everything else. But when you tell them, look, this trade policy is killing working people, it, you know, they tell you, well, at least the overall increases in GDP. And plus, my company made a bundle. And so you, you understand what I'm saying? Sure. Once you stop relying financially on working people to fund your campaign and you got to go to people who are high end uh, wealthy folk. The dialogue changes. The conversation changes. Certain, the priorities change. The priorities change. Certain conversations that used to be easy now are awkward. So if I go and I say, I don't think TPP is a good policy, I got people at the country club who say, I think it's an awesome policy and it's going to make me a lot of money. And some of that money I'm going to use to help elect you. You still don't like it? Hmm. 
And then I started saying, well, I definitely see the, <laughs> see the strength in it there. You know, definitely uh, two sides to the story. I mean, you know what I'm saying? If, I, if, if, I'm, going, if I'm raising money with, a, with, with trying to raise, get a pack check from Wells Fargo, am I going to talk about corruption and fraud, which they engage in, or, or Goldman? You know, I mean, they, they, you know, I'm on the financial services committee. I get, I, I don't get no money from those guys. I don't want none because if I'm going to call them to account on the committee, I cannot be asking them with money with the other hand. So my point is the, the fact that labor has declined in its strength has made some Democrats say, well, that's not where that's not our best source of any money anymore. So we're going to go to where the money is. And that has changed the conversation. And so it's not really your voters who are purple or red. It's your donors, and we have a misalignment between our donors and the people we represent, and that is a problem. And that's something that you're obviously thinking a great deal about. Yeah. And as may we, I say this one thing before? Because but but look at this. It's not like we don't have any business people on our side. There's a group called Patriotic Millionaires. They're awesome. You guys have a guy in town named Rick Hanover. He's helping to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Oh uh, yeah, Nick Hanauer. Hanauer. Yeah. So it's not like all rich people are out to get all working class people. That's not true either. But the truth is that in, that's why I said you know I'm not trying to say nasty things about well-to-do folks. I wish I was one of them. I'd like to be one one day. But my point is that when you say that you got to be a self-funder to run, it changes the conversations that you have. Wealthy people have great relationships with politicians. True. Working people have, like, you know, it must be election time again conversations with politicians. And I'm not making this stuff up. There's a guy named Andrew Hacker. And he wrote, uh, he writes a lot on these topics. He did statistical analysis where, where he showed that if you're in the top 1%, there is a very good chance, more than likely chance, that Congress is going to do what you want. If you are between the 99% and the top 90%, there's like a 50-50 chance that Congress is going to do what you want. If you're 90 and below, there's a chance, the best, the most likely chance is that they're going to do what you don't want. Right. And so one of the ways to push back against that, of course, is unionizing. Well, we got a union. But see, the thing is, it's a chicken or egg problem. You're not going to find Congress pushing unions to organize shops. Right. You're going to find unions organizing shops. Right. and, 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 And politicians will tend to follow who they think can help them win. So so my standpoint is. I believe in unions. I believe that unions help working class. Unions built the American middle class. I'm committed to them because I believe that in the United States, we should have to have economic opportunity for everybody. We've got to have working class prosperity. We ought to be able to go to the doctor. We ought to be able to afford a home. Our kids ought to be able to aspire to develop their minds in any direction that they want. That is, you know, we ought to be able to, to do these things. But some folks' attitude is, well, look, I'm, I just always wanted to be in Congress, and I'm going to do what I need to do to do that. Right. And I'm going to go where the money is to do that. I'm not so much worried about all that other stuff. So, you know, but we got about 70 members of the Progressive Caucus who, who look at the world the way I do. People like Pramila Jayapal, awesome. Yes, you she know is. what I mean? Yeah. Awesome. 
definitely there. And you guys got a great delegation from from uh, from um, Washington. And so I just say. Those are some of the dynamics at work. Well, let's just look forward a, a little bit here in closing. Um, if and, you know, God willing, when the Democrats take uh, right. over one or both chambers. We're of, optimistic, of, of man. Congress, we believe in it. We are. How do you see the Democrats most effectively being an, an opposition party against the Trump agenda? Well, we have an oversight responsibility that is constitutional in nature. We have a responsibility to call all of the all of the heads of uh, of uh, every secretariat, you know, and call them in and ask them questions about the operation of the agencies that they're running. So I would I would anticipate that from the standpoint of of the uh, of the Financial Services Committee that Maxine Waters will have uh, Secretary Carson come in and talk about housing policy. I expect I expect. Uh, that uh, Frank Pallone, who was the head of the Energy and Commerce, who will be the head of Energy and Commerce, will have um, the you know uh, Pruitt come in if he's still there. I just he's still there. Yeah, you, <laughs> you know, never know. To answer a few questions about the operation of our nation's environmental policy, we will have a lot of those kind of things. I, you know, everybody asked me about uh, uh, about impeachment. I'm one of those people who says, look, let's let's let Mueller do his job, but let's make sure they don't interfere with his job because they're literally trying to. Uh, subvert his his uh, his investigation. I think that you know you get a guy like Nunes who doesn't really like investigating the president and doing his job as the chair of intelligence. I think we end up with somebody like uh, Adam Schiff, uh, new ball game. But I want everybody to know this, especially the Democrats. None of this will be done with venality. It will not be revenge. The Democrats will not become the party of no, say no, like the Republicans no. did in 2010. We are going to put the best interests of the American people first. And people ask me, would you work with Trump? And I said, if Trump came up with an idea that I actually thought was right, I would work with him. Um, that doesn't mean I like him and it doesn't mean I suddenly like other things that he's done that I disagree with. But I'm never going to put politics in front of the best interests of the American people. I'm never going to do that. I'd rather lose than do that. And so that's the deal. The, the, so so you, can, you can count on this, that if I'm opposing Trump, it is sincere and in good faith. It's not just politics. It's for real. And if, we, and if I end up voting to impeach him one day, and I'm not saying that I will, if I ever do, you can bet it's not because he's a Republican. It is because he has failed the American people. It is because he has fallen below the standards we have for presidents of the United States. It will, there will be no venality. There will be no revenge. It'll be on the facts. Well, Representative Ellison, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show. As you said last night, this is our moment in history. This is our moment. Yep. Hey, nice talking to you, man. Thank you. You got it. So next, in light of the rumblings coming out of the White House about what Trump might do following the FBI's raid of the offices and hotel room of Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, I thought this might be a good time to revisit our interview with Ben Wickler. He is the Washington, D.C. director for MoveOn.org. They are the organization urging people to take to the streets if special prosecutor Robert Mueller is fired. So I asked Wickler not just about their plans for what to do on the day of the firing, but maybe more importantly, what the plan is for after that? That's a, it's a great and really important question. And I should start by saying 
For folks that don't already know, uh, there's a coalition of several dozen groups, including Move On, Indivisible, Public Citizen, Stand Up America, and, and a bunch of others that have come together around a plan and a website called TrumpIsNotAboveTheLaw.org, mm-hmm. um, where people can RSVP. There are now 200,000 people who've pre-RSVP'd for flash protests in the event that Mueller's fired or there's a similar Saturday Night Massacre. So step one is flood the streets, make absolutely clear that this is a constitutional crisis that Congress needs to act. Um, the next day is the question that you're asking. And mm. there's a couple of major options and which direction we go depends a little bit on the fact pattern um, that emerges from the initial crisis and the response to it. So one idea is to have to call for a national march on Washington three weeks later and really flood the zone to try to get a, a massive kind of wave of people to come to D.C. Uh, the other direction, and they're not mutually exclusive, is to run a kind of an escalating series of actions focused on congressional targets. Because if it's a situation where Mueller's fired and it seems like the Congress is cracking, it might be something where building pressure in congressional districts as well as Washington on Congress could lead to Congress passing a special prosecutor law and rehiring Mueller uh, as a special prosecutor. And you're talking about targeting specific members of Congress then, who you think might be vulnerable to that kind of pressure. Well, you probably want to do it everywhere. Um, but especially specific ones. I mean, to get something through Congress with a veto-proof majority means it needs to feel like it is a political must-do. It needs to, you know, one antecedent is the SOPA and PIPA protests uh, in it was 2011 and 2012, uh, when there was this internet blacklist bill that was supposed to fly through Congress. Then there was this gigantic uprising, and suddenly everyone in Congress was against it, and it died. And that was a moment when everyone in Congress kind of felt the hurricane force winds blowing and was like, oh my God, I got to get on board. Right. So if there's a, if it feels like we're on moving in the direction where that could work, then we want to do that. If it's, if there's a sense that the right is like totally entrenching, then it actually might be that Washington makes more sense rather than, than Congress as a target, because it might be that people doing the right thing in the rest of the justice department is necessary, or it might be that we're trying to like signal to the courts that they need to move in. And, well, yeah, you know, and you like, you talked earlier about a veto-proof majority, and as we recently saw uh, when Congress voted overwhelmingly with a veto-proof majority to approve Russian sanctions, and the White House is disregarding that, that that yeah, you may need to go around Congress in a situation like this, right? Exactly, exactly, and that's I mean, in a in a real constitutional crisis, you'll wind up with a situation where. The White House, like White House is now openly defying Congress and where it openly defies a court order in addition. And, you know, ultimately, it's, it can get pretty dark pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if there's a kind of open defiance of a series of court orders, then that might then sort of ricochet back to Congress to do something more significant. And ultimately, like Congress's power over the executive branch in a formal sense comes through the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. And it happens that we're still in a situation with uh, short-term funding bills. And so there's a sense in which, like, actually, Congress has a particular ability right now to, to shut off the tap and, and throw the... And you know, have some leverage, leverage, basically. And have some leverage over the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all pretty far afield because it presupposes a situation where Congress is, like, actually willing to frontally take on the White House. And, it, and the White, you know, the conservative movement's strategy right now is to just aggressively discredit the people investigating them and discredit law enforcement 
so you know it could be that Congress basically doesn't budge. I mean, the the thing I'm as much as I don't like envisioning a kind of constitutional chaos moment like this, it's also possible that Mueller could be fired. Uh, there could be a series of press releases from Republicans in Congress, you know, a roar of protests in the streets, and then they do nothing. And if that happens, then actually, you know, getting everyone in the country registered to vote over the next few weeks might be the the most significant thing. Um, mm. It might be that there's no channel for accountability until the next election. And I very much hope that's not the case. There's a lot of Republicans who've sort of, you know, said, uh, not to me, but to folks on the right who are talking to them about this, that if there is a real crisis, then they will be there. They just don't think that that's really going to happen. Uh, you know, there have been very few profiles in courage. Even the, <laughs> even the retiring Jeff Flakes and Bob Corkers of the world have not moved past uh, giving speeches and writing books. Right. So, and I think a lot of us wish that maybe they would. Uh, <laughs> they kind of put their money yeah. where their, their mouths and their and their words are. Um, just to clarify, just a couple points about the mobilization. Uh, does MoveOn have a plan for if Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is fired, which is looking more and more like that's Trump's intention? Is there is there a specific plan for that? So it's interesting. I mean, I, there will certainly be some kinds of you know, protest and, and calling Congress and stuff if that happens. The question of whether that triggers the full-scale flood the streets is uh, the the plan right now is to have the coordinating groups basically convene and just take stock of where what the intensity level is among their memberships. Because the thing you don't want to do is call for a day of mass protests and then have very few people show up. And so my guess is that the the Mueller firing plan would just be executed exactly the same way in a Rod Rosenstein firing situation. But if there's some kind of extenuating circumstance that we can't envision where actually there wouldn't be that level of intensity in the streets, then you want to use the tactic that is going to have the highest impact at the moment. So it's a it's a game time decision about whether to kind of smash the glass and, and do the whole thing or whether it's like a more you know, targeted and localized effort right away that then builds towards something bigger. And I imagine that this is something that you will transmit to uh, move on followers, uh, possibly through Trump is not above the law dot org or elsewhere. Yes, that's right. And okay. it'll I mean, look, if, if when a moment like this comes, which <laughs> feels awfully proximate right now, <laughs> uh, yeah. part of the plan is to make sure that the response is inescapable to anyone who's an active Twitter user on an email list of any progressive group gets text messages from any progressive group. Like, you know, we'll certainly be trying to spread the alarm through our friends in podcast world, like, like yourself and Pod Save America and all those kinds of things. Like it'll be an all, all hands on deck, all points bulletin type situation. And while we're not uh, rogue Hawaiian missile alert administrators, <laughs> uh, I, I do think collectively we have the ability to sound the alarm pretty effectively. So there you go, a rather light ending to a very serious subject. If you want to hear the full interview with Ben, you can scroll back and check out episode 51. I'm also providing a link to that episode on the website. Hey, I want to mention uh, that there are two events coming up this weekend, two marches that are happening in Seattle. The first is the second annual March for Science organized by Teresa Swanson. This is happening Saturday, April 14th at 10 a.m. starting at Cal Anderson Park. Also on Saturday the 14th, is the second annual tax rally put on by the amazing Cat Martin. Hey, I'm guessing the Trump chicken will be in attendance. This one begins at 2 p.m. at Judkins Park. So, hey, you can make a full day of it. There are details and links for info on the SoundCloud page and also at indivisiblepodcast.org. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. And, of course, you can find links and info to everything about the show at IndivisiblePodcast.org. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Representative Keith Ellison. My special thanks to Ryan Doyle, Vedant Patel, Ansley Lasitas, and Susie and Eric Levine. And, as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.